0: This episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast is sponsored by AWS Energy. AWS brings the most advanced and secure cloud services and deep industry expertise across energy, utilities, and sustainable energy sectors. Together with a broad partner ecosystem, AWS is accelerating the energy transition through practical innovations to deliver energy efficiently, reliably, sustainably, and responsibly, Learn more at aws.amazon.com slash energy.
1: Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity.
0: Hello and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Batier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. Now, today I have a panel discussion that I hosted a few weeks ago. So this is a little bit of a special show bringing you this panel discussion. The, The title of that panel was Demystifying the DOE loan program office loan application process it sounds very exciting right and this panel is it's actually very interesting so for those of you that don't know and a lot of a lot of information will be given in the podcast so I'm going to try to keep this short but the loan program office and the loans that they give out are are essentially very large loans that are geared towards getting newer technologies beyond demonstration into commerciality. So, these are these are areas where traditional finance doesn't necessarily meet all of the needs, but it's also not startup venture capital kind of culture. It is in that weird gray zone of you've got a really cool technology, you've got something very exciting that is nearly commercial, but you need a little bit extra help. And when I say a little bit extra, we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars of extra help. And it's a special kind of help, which is where the loan program office comes in. So, it this, is, this was actually very exciting and and for all of those of my listeners who are in that space of having something that is nearly commercial but still trying to figure out what that means and how to get there in a in a capitalism specific sort of way this i think is going to be a great show now i will just highlight this with um this was a it was a fun panel. There were four different members. I'm not going to introduce them because they they introduced themselves in the podcast. And this is actually going to be part one of two different panels that I hosted. I hosted these at an event in Chattanooga, Tennessee. It was uh, an office opening for energy transition finance merging with Emerald Operating. So, the next podcast is, is going to be in a few weeks. I'll give an intro for that. But without rambling anymore, here, here is this panel discussion. There will be a little bit of a talk at the beginning, talking through what the Loan Program Office is and what have been some of the application processes. And, and then we're gonna get into a Q&A back and forth about the most recent applications, and what it looks like to have a, how you can have a successful application. So I said I was gonna stop talking. This time, I really am gonna stop talking and onto that panel discussion.
2: Welcome everybody to Energy Transition Finance uh, and Emerald Operating Partners liftoff seminar. we have got a couple of great panels for you today. I'm Michael Walton. I'm the managing partner of Energy Transition Finance, and I'm a partner at Emerald Operating Partners. Um, And so our first panel today is going to be about demystifying the Department of Energy Loan Programs Office application process. And then the second panel, we're going to get into the sort of real world implications of this. And so current and future energy transition projects. So I'm really excited uh, to have our moderator here. So Joe Battier, who is the the host of Energy Transition Solutions podcast. Um, We've got Ed Davis from the Department of Energy Loan Programs Office. Um, Myself, Michael Walton with Energy Transition Finance, Rob Edwards, Jr, uh, former Loan Programs Office but currently the Managing Director at Hamilton Clark Sustainable Capital, Uh, and we have Priya Swami, who also was former Loan Programs Office uh, but is now a Senior Advisor for Energy Transition Finance uh, through her role uh, as Senior Vice President at Allegheny Science and Technology. So with that, I'm going to hand it off to Joe to um, kick us off.
0: All right. Well, thank you everybody for joining us. And I think to to save enough time and to keep going, just quickly, my background, I'm a geothermal geologist by day and then energy transition solutions podcast host all other times. So I love talking about energy and I am very excited to be moderating these two panels today. This first one is, as, as Michael said, it's demystifying the loan program office application process. So we are gonna start with a few slides and I think Ed's gonna do that. So I am gonna give the floor to him. Ed, take it away.
3: Well, well, thank you. I've, I've been with, uh, good, good afternoon, everyone. It's a real pleasure to be here. So i real happy to be able to hopefully demystify I didn't know we had to demystify the LPO (laughs) process, but uh, be that as it may, uh, happy to do that uh, this afternoon with you folks and to answer any questions that you might have. So without further ado, let's get started. Um, So we're going to talk about what the LPO does, how it engages with borrowers, sort of our technical process, uh, the review process, the origination process. And again, I think we want to reserve enough time to answer any questions that you might have. So if we go to the next slide. This is a metaphor, if you will, the bridge. This is our metaphor that we use a lot when we talk to uh, members of the public and potential borrowers. The Loan Program Office was originally established by Congress in 2005. And the, the program was established by Congress in recognition that there was a gap, the Department of Energy has had a good record over the last 20, 30 years of doing basic energy research, sort of bench top sciences and so forth, demonstrations, development, and up to that point when the technology has matured to a high level of readiness for that first deployment, quite often the, um, the developers of the technology were unable to find uh, financing, and if they were to find private sector financing, it would be very expensive. So um, the view was that the that there needed to be something to fill this gap, and that was the establishment. That was the reason behind the establishment of the Loan Programs Office. This metaphor of crossing the bridge builds on sort of the venture capitalist uh, uh, metaphor of the Valley of Death. For those of you that might be familiar with technology development, there's this. We'll develop it. We'll bring it up to commercial readiness. And when we're ready to take that first leap, that first of a kind um, implementation, uh, quite often uh, they weren't able to get over to the other side. So we're here to help companies, borrowers, technology developers to get to the other side. And I'm pleased to see a couple of uh, our applicants in the room here uh, this afternoon. And we have a very good track record what we offer, our mission basically, is to is to uh, help the private sector. As Jigar Shah, who's our director of our program for the last three years, is always fond of saying, Jigar has said that we are we are we we depend on the private sector to lead, but we're going to be government enabled. So, private sector led government enabled. So we're here really to support the private sector and the deployment of clean technologies as well as the related supply chain and uh, component manufacturing to create jobs and to reduce emissions around the United States and the communities that host these projects. That's really the mission of the the DOE Loan Programs Office. Um, In terms of our value proposition, we offer Flexible financing structures long tenors up to 30 years Uh, You have a committed partnership with uh, the Department of Energy. We don't sell off our loans we when we join with a borrower an applicant and We are there for the duration of the of the project itself from beginning to end and that uh, really is very significant because a lot of these first-of-a-kind uh, projects that are incorporating technology that's being commercialized for the first time uh, there'll be there'll be some unexpected uh, you know surprises down the road and what better partner would you have than a an agency that has over 10,000 engineers and scientists 17 national laboratories if you run into a technical issue with the implementation of a project what better place to turn to than the department of energy so and we have, we have proved that over time in terms of number of projects that actually have had some issues develop and we were able to come in and help fix it. Today we're gonna to talk about the loan process in terms of demystifying the loan process, how it starts off, how it evolves, and how an application matures into an actual loan. Um, the, uh, this slide talks to the sort of the process steps Uh, It sort of begins with a pre-application consultant. By the way, there are no application fees. We used to have application fees. I've been with the DOE now, OPO program, for over 15 years and they had application fees. None of the applicants liked application fees because they never knew whether or not they were gonna ever get over the other side of the bridge. So they didn't want to pay any application fees. So I'm pleased to report to you today we have none. Uh, So it starts with a pre-consultation Matter of fact, when Jigger came in, he established the outreach and business development group that Rob Edwards led as our first director. So we thank him for for all of his uh, wisdom and guidance and establishing that division. We've grown from handful of people to about 75, almost to 100 people now. And we are sort of the customer-facing edge of the loan programs office. We're there to help borrowers understand our process. We're help them to demystify the program, Michael, as best we can. I've been uh, there now for almost going on three to four years and uh, cutting across all of the clean tech sectors practically with a few exceptions. So it's been something. So start out with a pre-application review. Uh, the individuals like myself that are in the outreach business development group are assigned an applicant, if you will, We're there for the entire process from beginning to end. Upon receiving an invitation into due diligence, we'll begin that due diligence review. And the due diligence review is when we do bring on advisors, if you will. Some of these will have advisor fees, obviously, which will have to be paid by the borrowers. We can get more into that. And that really is to do a really deep dive, both technically and financially, into the project specifics. Uh, to determine whether or not these projects will generate sufficient cash flow to repay the loan. Um, And then if it's determined that uh, the project indeed is financeable, the Department of Energy will enter into a bilateral agreement known as a conditional commitment. And then we're off to the races, we close and fund, and then there's the monitoring of it. So next slide. Um, Tell me if I'm running out of time here. The the LPO program really has grown in scope The Congress has added additional programs. Beginning back in 2005, we had the initial program, which is the Innovative Technology Program. That program we saw later in 2007, with the passage of the Energy Independence and Security Act, which stood up the ATVM program for advanced technology manufacturing, advanced technology transportation vehicles, and then further uh, tribal energy, Uh, CIFIA, which is a program for uh, carbon carbon dioxide, infrastructure, finance, uh, if you will. Um, We have about, now we have about six, eight, almost eight different programs. Uh, Significantly also 2020 program was modified again by Congress to allow DOE, LPO to fund the supply chains that are associated with uh, innovative technology, that was the Energy Policy Act Amendments Act of 2020, followed by 2021, which is the bipartisan infrastructure act, which further uh, expanded the loan program and increased the financing available for energy, clean energy innovation uh, technologies. And then finally, uh, and most recently, the uh, IRA, which everybody's very familiar with, we can talk about that later. So today we're looking at, when. Three years ago when Rob Edwards came in, I don't think we had, Rob. We had no pipeline. <laughs> no, there the was no the previous administration-
4: name. Oh, that was a zero pipeline. Zero
3: pipeline. When Except came, for a couple of
4: companies like Asus who was like we treading water for none, a few years. Zero.
3: Right. Zero pipeline. And today, you know, it's over, we have about 177, 160 billion in the pipeline. Very significant. Jiggershaw deserves a lot of credit for bringing this program back. Um, next slide. And here is the sort of the remaining what we call loan authority uh, segregated into the various programs. 72 billion available still. So get those applications in if you would, please. Uh, And the clean tech uh, energy area. 60 in the Energy Infrastructure Reinvestment Program. And I call that the mansion provision. We can talk more about that. That program is targeted for energy infrastructure that has ceased to operate or soon ceased to operate, advanced transportation technologies, 50 billion and on and on and on. So we do have available funding resources uh, and we have sufficient uh, credit subsidy. We can talk more about that later. And here again is just a you know, sort of a display of some of our programmatic uh, areas. I've touched on these already, next slide. And then the application review, As I mentioned, I'm going to focus on innovative technologies. It's a two-part process. First part starts really with what we call a technical screen. Uh, Under under our statute, we have four principal eligibility criteria that are reviewed in the part one. Uh, One is, is a project that's being proposed, incorporate innovative technology. So that's number one, obviously. Number two is project has to result in a meaningful reduction in greenhouse gases, and by meaningful, at least at a minimum 10 10%, 10%. Third, the project has to be located in the United States. And fourth, there needs to be a reasonable prospect of repayment. This is a loan program, not a grant program. We're probably the only loan program within the Department of Energy. Every other office within the Department of Energy operates off of uh, grants. And we are uh, a loan program. We can talk more about that. We do go through, we do have a technical environmental group dedicated to reviewing our applications. They look both at the technical aspects of the application as well as the environmental aspects. And we can talk more about the environmental reviews. The secretaries determination uh, to issue a conditional commitment she actually signs it or he signs it and the decision to um, fund and close is uh, represents a major federal action by the agency, Department of Energy that has to be in compliance with NEPA. So we'll do we'll begin our NEPA review when the due diligence process starts. The part two application will have to include, what we call an environmental report. We can talk more about the specifics about that. But we do have to be in compliance with NEPA. Uh, the NEPA application process, we comply to the maximum extent possible by adopting other federal, state, and local agency environmental reviews. So we don't like to reinvent the wheel if it's not needed. So we'll, be, we'll use an adoptive process. And uh, most of the time that results in environmental Assessments and not an environmental impact statement. So uh, it's a reasonable process and it sort of concludes uh, in keeping with the time frame that's required to do the financial due diligence, so I'll leave it there. Um, The due diligence process, hopefully we'll talk more about this. This is really the, as Stephen Covey would say, Stephen Covey being the management guru who wrote the book, you know, Seven Habits effective people. Begin with the end in mind. So quite often, if you are going to be an effective applicant, the most important thing is to keep the end in mind and that is to get into due diligence. And uh, due diligence is when you really have the where the rubber meets the road, where the we'll hire up our advisors, we'll roll up our shirt sleeves, we'll hire a due diligence team, we'll bring on the advisors, we'll do deep dives into all aspects of the application and upon uh, determination that the project is financially viable, that there's sufficient cash flows. Most of the time we'll do project finance as a structure, limited recourse project financing, in which the repayment of the loan will depend on the future cash flows directly from the project. So it's important to review all of the contracts, those constellation of contracts, that come into play when the project is getting implemented. We'll review all that, and upon a finding that there's reasonable cash flow, we'll enter, we'll enter into a, um, a loan agreement, a credit report, and so forth. So I'm going to stop there. Taking a lot of time. I don't know if there's any other questions. Should I stop, wait for others to speak? I know Rob is, wants to talk, and young lady here also, so I'll yield back my time.
1: So
4: sure. Ed, Ed has known me for too long. We started working together in 2009.
0: Well, Ed, thank you for that very informative presentation to get us going. I think, Michael, you've got a few slides as well to to share right now.
2: Yeah, just to to build exactly on the foundation that, that Ed laid, you know, Energy Transition Finance exists to advise applicants that are going through this process based on Uh, our team's experience going through this with the advanced clean energy storage project in in Delta, Utah. So Paul Browning, who will be on the the next panel, was the CEO at Mitsubishi Power Americas that led that project. And then he reached out to Lawrence Quinn, who is the managing partner of Emerald Operating Partners. And Emerald was sort of the the power behind the the effort to, to make that application successful. And so after after we you know after that loan was closed, you know, our goal was to, to basically turn around and help other people across the finish line. Right? And so we engage with applicants in any stage of the application that Ed just laid out. In some cases, those are startups that are trying to decide if if this is even a fit for them or if they're or if they're ready. Uh, in other cases, it's somebody that's stuck in between part one and part two because they approached part one as a sort of like aspirational grant and then all of a sudden they were like, wait, reasonable likelihood of repayment?
0: <laughs>
2: What's that? <laughs> What's that? <laughs> uh, and so they need help getting their business model and financial model and, and, and just understanding how to really build a case, right, that, that can get that kind of financial backing. Other applicants get through part two uh, and just can't maintain the pace that's necessary through due diligence. And our team really approaches that like a merger and acquisition due diligence process, where there's a very fast pace. There are quick deliverables that have to be turned around on time or the deal dies. You know, in so many cases, you get applicants that are just sort of like withering on the vine. And so you know, we, we can help them just get, get their feet under them and, and get to the finish line. And then we can also help support during the, the loan close and monitoring through project support. Um, but one of the really great tools that we developed to assist applicants with this process is a free web-based assessment tool uh, that is a really simple questionnaire that's built directly off of our experience, plus LPO's part one and part two application instructions and their application guidance. And what we do with that is create a a numeric score, an assessment of their readiness, and a tree map, Uh, that's the the thing with the boxes, the bigger the box, the more important that component uh, to their application. And it gives them a really clear uh, direction for how to allocate their resources, right? and then we can provide a scope of work to fill in the blanks, but whether they use us, whether they use their internal capacity or another advisor, it just really gives them a good direction, and then we can help as much or as little as they need.
3: That's a real effective tool. Yeah. And we might have to adopt it at LPO. Somehow. I mean,
2: we're, yeah. we're ready and willing to talk. <laughs> we, should, um. we should try it out, I <laughs> And so, you know, the example process that we have is also sort of lays out the timeline that is a, a rational timeline for an applicant that has that game plan, like Ed said, that has the end in mind and is working directly to it and has a plan for, to, to bridge every single gap in the process. And this is what we help them put together, manage and drive through the loan close. So with that, Uh, Actually, I'll hand it back to Joe for the conversation.
0: Yes, thank you. So, Ed, Michael, you've introduced yourself, really what you do. Priya and Rob, can we have you two just give a a short snippet of kind of what you do now and also your experience with, with past LPO applications and kind of your angle coming at this?
5: My name is Priya Swami, and um, like Michael saying, I'm with Allegheny Science and Technology. I'm VP of Hydrogen Technologies there. So um, as you've all probably heard, seven hydrogen hubs were recently announced. And so I support one of the hubs, um, Arch 2, which includes all of West Virginia, parts of Pennsylvania, and Ohio. And so and I also support um, an economic development hub uh, that that were recently announced by the Economic Development Authority. These are technology hubs. And so we are uh, launching a hub in West Virginia focused on advanced energy and industrial technology manufacturing. So those are some of the things that I do now as well as support applicants through the LPO loan process. When I and before I was with AST, I was with LPO. And um, my very first project there was the ACES-Delta project. So I joined LPO at the very beginning of due diligence. Um, and, um, you know, and so I supported Title 17 and the ATVM program.
4: Hey, um, good afternoon, everyone. I'm, I'm Rob Edwards, Jr. And um, I've been doing energy project finance continuously since um, the mid-1990s, 1996. And uh, in 2009, I was asked to join the Department of Energy as the uh, deputy general counsel for energy policy. It was a senior presidential appointee. And uh, I got there. Uh, my job description did not include the LPO. But um, my second month there, my general counsel said, um, we need you, Rob Edwards, to close the Ford 5.9 billion ATBM loan right away by September. And then you've got to work on the Tesla loan, which needs to be closed immediately as well. So after my heart actually started beating again, um, I got to work on my fourth job at the department and um, really negotiated and cleared up some difficulties with Ford. Uh, We closed that deal in um, September 2009 and made a first disbursement in October 2009, while the other big three were over on the other side of the mall with Steve Ratner going through bankruptcy so our 5.9 billion dollar loan to ford allowed them to continue their investment in the energy transition although we didn't call it that Uh, we actually funded the all aluminum f-150 pickup truck we funded lots of improvements to their ice engines and we allowed them to invest in an electrification program in the middle of the financial crisis when their other companies were going bankrupt Uh, then i turned to negotiating across the table from elon and i mean that literally and spent a lot of time with Elon starting in October after we got the Ford loan done, and we negotiated vigorously, um, and um, I got to know him well, and he's as brilliant as everybody knows him to be, uh, difficult as everybody knows him to be, Um, but we managed to get the ATBM loan closed for Tesla, $465 million in January 2010, uh, when they had literally no money left, and then we got the first disbursement in February. And I went out to the design center. I spent a lot of time with Elon. And the most, one of the most moments of, amazing moments of my life was after we were meeting for a few hours at the Tesla side of the factory, Elon said, I wanna show you something. He opens up a door and there they are building SpaceX, SpaceX rockets on the other side of the wall. So this sounds like a science fiction movie, but it was actually real and, and he's incredible. So fast forward, um, we did a lot of loans um, from 2009 to 2014. That's when I work with Ed. Uh, Jonathan Silver, the prior um, director of the loan program's office, built a $30 billion portfolio out of nothing. Well, there were like three people there when he started. When he left, there was an underwriting team. $30 billion portfolio, 3% default rate. Wall Street Journal says it's making money for the, for the government. So then years go by, um, I think I've can you guys still hear me okay? Okay, years go by, and um, Jigger uh, calls me up uh, and asks me to come in and be the first director of the loan program's newly formed outreach and business development team. Ed described it beautifully. We are the client-facing team, like the general investment banking guy at J.P. Morgan, who's got, you know, follows the, the oil and gas industry. So um, we did that work. We helped to establish some really good practices and we try to make the LPO a a applicant-friendly place as well as we regularly, as you can attest, interact with the investment banks, with other financiers, private equity, venture capitals, and technologists. So we are like, you know, when I was there, this will be, I'll finish up and actually get to something you want me to talk about, um, which is we were tracking our calls weekly had to report them to Jigger, who reported them to the Secretary, who reported them to the White House. How many calls did we make? And the amazing thing was, it was like 200 plus a week. So we were literally, and that's what Jigger wanted us, to be in with the energy transition community daily. And I'm sure now the numbers are through the roof. Um, and that's why we have 177 applications so uh, now i'm an investment banker helping companies raise capital in the energy transition debt and equity with a real focus really on helping companies monetize the bil and the ira because that's what it's about right these are big big numbers but they only matter when those dollars get into the hands of the companies otherwise it's just some number in some kind of spreadsheet of treasury so that's what we try to do just like just like michael and energy transition finance tries to do get the money out of the government into the companies where it belongs so we can create the jobs and accelerate the energy transition.
0: That's great. So thank you for the introductions. Now, one one big question as we look at this, I heard the names Ford, Tesla, Elon. Tesla and Elon, they are maybe smaller. St- large startups but still much larger than say what you would think of for many of these startup companies who are looking to develop a project so i want to start high level before we even get started in an application process what are some of those roadblocks that or or common common hurdles that most companies are going to end up hitting that they probably aren't thinking about?
4: I'd start down at that end with the experts and maybe come back through here.
3: Well, I would just uh, volunteer. So um, just off the bat, uh, I think it's already been mentioned, some of these initial applicants, uh, particularly pre-revenue companies or what you could call startups, are submitting what I would say are aspirational uh, applications or uh, applications on a cocktail napkin and really haven't uh, thought through all of the various and sundry steps and requirements to take you know from a part one application part two application what it really means to do project financing which is not an easy thing when you come when you start to unpack all the requirements it's very detailed and very comprehensive but most of them sort of ignore that and just sort of submit a an application most of them think i think that it's going to be a direct loan to the company itself and not to a project company that's been dedicated and set up exclusively for implementing that project. So there's a lot of blind spots, I would say.
2: Yeah, I would, I would answer that in terms of two different categories, right? They're sort of the, the big applicants and the small applicants. The small applicants, uh, uh, Ed's exactly right. You know, they're, they sort of approach it as throwing spaghetti at the wall without a clear plan um, and they you know, tend to approach it with a, an equity pitch in mind, you know, focusing on their brightest opportunities and their you know, 10x growth after five years and you know, the LPO fundamentally is more interested in their worst case scenario and that they still get paid back in that scenario. Now for the big ones that have experience with debt finance at this kind of scale, what they tend to struggle with with the LPO are the sort of idiosyncratic things like NEPA review, a community benefits plan, Davis-Bacon, cargo preference, the things that no bank on earth makes applicants do, but then they come to the LPO thinking that it's just another debt application. They're like, what is all this stuff? And so you know, in, in either case, Having, having those advisors that have been through the process you know, just helps it go more smoothly.
5: Well, I would add that um, so, for some of those uh, smaller companies and startups um, that Ed and Michael talked about, it's really important for them to do their homework, you know, you must do your homework before even thinking about applying for uh, a phase one uh, application. There is so much information about the LPO process now online. And um, OBD has done an excellent job, you know, um, hitting all the circuits and describing what LPO is about, helping demystify the LPO loan process. Um, and so there's a ton of information. So I encourage, you know, instead of throwing spaghetti at the wall, just do the homework um, and really understand the process. Uh, secondly, you know, there are so many different kinds of services and consultants that uh, know the process pretty well. And um, I think one of the things that uh, applicants don't plan for very well is how long it might take to get through the LPO process. Um, And I think uh, there's this uh, idea that uh, if you have a project uh, but internally it's not fully baked, if you get into the LPO pipeline early, that through the process of going through the LPO process, somehow that project is gonna come together, okay? That should not be the case, all right? Um, so the project should, you know, it will go quite more quickly through the process. The more, the more details, um, the applicant has to support, for example, their capital costs. Okay. Um, if you enter the phase one application and you've already done uh, a pre-feed, that's fantastic. Okay. It gives them all the information they need internally to quickly do the eligibility review and the less information they have, the longer it's gonna take. And if you, when you're in the phase two um, application and you have done a feed, okay, that's excellent. Again, you have, they have more information. If you've worked with um, a financial firm that has built an excellent financial model, that is wonderful because then the origination team actually has a robust model with uh, reliable numbers in it to work off of, and they don't have to build one for you. So all of these things are things that, you know, maybe applicants are not thinking about um, in the very beginning, but that could accelerate getting through the due diligence, which is very robust. Um, And also just mention a couple just very basic things. Um, The LPO loans are not for R and D, okay? So um, sometimes applicants will come in and they don't fully understand what commercialization might mean. And so they may think, okay, well, you know, our project is ready to go to a market, um, but there are still a couple of things we want to work out through continuous improvement, but that's actually R&D. Okay, so that may not be eligible. Um, also, the LPO loan is not gonna support operations, okay? post. Construction and it's not going to support, you know, um, just a lot of work after that facility has been built. And so, these are some of the fundamentals that I think folks should really understand when they're trying to apply for an LPA loan, and just to kind of get the scope within what's real, you know, realistic.
4: So um, I agree with everything that's just been said, and it's a really thoughtful and detailed breakdown of what's going on. So I'm going to go back up one, one higher level which is the reason uh, Jigger set up an outreach and business development team was exactly to be able to work with applicants before they submit their application and to start to work through all these complexities and details. And our team, at least the way I set it up, I don't know if it's still running this way, we were the gatekeepers between an eager applicant and what we call the loan portal, which is like you know on Star Trek. You, know, you, go, you get a portal invite. Like, who is controlling the portal invite? But this was very important because once your application is in the portal and accepted, then you are really, DOE is beginning to spend real resources and dedicate engineering time and other time to analyzing your application. Our job was to help applicants prepare the best draft to get into the portal. And people get frustrated because they keep thinking, I just want to start this process. Here's my paper napkin, isn't that good enough? Well, you know, we don't believe in the Laffer curve, right? That was never really a good, and that shows you that you shouldn't be doing economics on a paper napkin. So we work with you to get your application to a place where the next groups of people can actually analyze it. Because if we send them an application that is not ready for prime time, then we're wasting everyone's time, including the applicant, and they get frustrated. But even after all that work, when we pass it through the portal, it's still so much work to be done. And you know, project finance is not for the faint of heart. And then if it was hard enough to do at J.P. Morgan where I worked, it's even harder to do at the LPO for a bunch of reasons. One, there are dozens of special requirements because it's a government lending program so there are all sorts of things we have to do that I never had to think about when I was at J.P. Morgan Global Commodities Group. That's one. Number two, the other thing I really think it's important for people to recognize. Under Jigger, Jigger has expanded the scope of what the LPO does beyond recognition. And the challenge recognition that is, Project Finance used to be for solar and, and utility scale wind farms. And that was hard to get done back in LPO 1.0. Now, every project that comes in the door is a different technology, first of kind. The whole offtake arrangement is unknown and unknowable. So the problem that, 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 that the LPO team has is that every project is really difficult and a first of type project. They can't just stamp them out. So if it takes a long time and applicants get frustrated, they should understand, you know, the LPO was doing the high wire act of project financing. We're not doing the easy deals. So um, that's why, you know, you need people like Energy Transition Finance, and maybe Hamlet Clark, maybe not, whatever. But, but you need Energy Transition Finance to help you through this process. And I think the most important thing is you've got to be honest with somebody who's getting ready to apply. Are you ready or not? Are you ready or not? Do not waste their time, your time, LPO's time, with things that are not really ready for a project financing.
0: Now, with that idea, and it's amazing how fast an hour goes when you're talking about such fun topics like loans. <laughs> 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 but it, I, I do want to speak for maybe the pessimists in the room, the people who now feel this heavy weight of what it takes to actually apply for an LPO loan, because there's there's extra due diligence, there is a process. So and and as as you said, it is different than going to the, the open market to try and get a loan. So I guess the the big question, and and this is this is your opportunity to sell it. Why why should any company, if they've already got a financial model, if they've already done pre-feed studies and kind of know that they are commercial. Why should they even go through the LPO? And I, th- I, th- I think everybody
4: should yeah, have I some input here. Yeah, I, I, I can, I'll start. We'll go <laughs> the other way this time, right? Here we go. So here it is. What Jigger is focused on, the LPO is focused on are first of kind projects, which really mean a uh, title 17. It's innovative, which means that technology has not been done in the United States more than three times over the past five years, so it's innovative. And guess what? All of my friends at J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, and whatever—they don't want innovative projects. They want the project that's been financed five times and print them out, like like stamping out, you know, cookies, right? Cookie cutter deals. So, why does why did Jigger take this task on? It goes back to what Ed said. We've got 10,000 scientists. We have the best technologists in the world. To bring to bear on looking at your first-of-kind project, you know, you got to decide that the technology works, right? But that's the easy part. The real part becomes is the technology works in the lab, it works in a demonstration scale, but can it work at a commercial scale? So the thing is, if the LPO didn't exist and doesn't need to exist, then all these applicants would already have their loans from J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs. But they don't. Not only do they not have the loans. They're not even being underwritten. They're not even looking at them. Now, what, what Jigger hopes is that we do the first deal of a kind, and then Wall Street does the next 10. But I think what's going to actually start happening is because people are getting a little tired about the LPO process, is that people are, and I've seen this with a client. We go into the LPO process, and the client says, this is going to take too long, and it's a pain in my neck. And then you go out and r- raise the private sector funding. And you know what? Jigger, would, and We all celebrate that. Because the the, the goal here is not to build the biggest book for LPO. The goal is to finance energy transition infrastructure and assets as fast as we can. And if Wall Street is ready, go for it. We'll get out of the way. Okay, those were a couple of thoughts.
3: Well, I thought that was excellent. Not only do we de-risk the projects from a technical standpoint, but I think we have one of the most sophisticated underwriting groups around. 10 times what I've seen in, in, in private banking, actually. I mean, Digger's assembled a team over there in origination and underwriting group is quite sophisticated. Uh, they can under undertake some of these first-of-a-kind deployments. I've, I've sort of compiled a list of what I call my top 10 reasons why projects don't make it to the finish line, Michael. I don't know if you want to hear yeah. those or not. So, number one, we've talked about it already here uh, this afternoon. It's a concept paper rather than a defined project uh, that's uh, amenable to project financing, number one. Number two, lack of demonstrated proof of innovation. I mean, we do first-of-a-kind innovative technologies that never before have been uh, underwritten in the United States from a banking standpoint. Number three, lack of successful technology demonstration a pilot demonstration, so have to have that pilot. Lack of uh, greenhouse gas uh, life cycle eligibility. Uh, a lot of projects come in and don't know a thing about how their projects really reduce greenhouse gases, and yet that is a fundamental eligibility requirement for the, um, for the LPO program. Lack of credit-worthy equity sponsors. Got to have credit-worthy equity sponsors. Lack of project development funding. I mean, you can't do a feed study. You can't do an end Independent engineers report, you can't build a financial model unless you have the resources to do it. So, lack of project development funding, that was number six. Number seven, lack of a feed or preliminary engineering study. You're going to need that uh, for the independent engineers report. Number eight, lack of a defined site or site control or NEPA compliance or permitting. A lot of them come in and say, do we have to have a site? When do we have to have a site? I mean, I have a project but no site. Tell me about that one. How does that work? Okay. Uh, number nine, lack of necessary regulatory approvals. Well, there you go, regulatory uncertainty. And number 10, lack of reasonable prospect of repayment. We already talked about that in terms of offtake. It's credit worthy offtakers. There you go. That's my top 10 list. That's great.
2: That's great. Yeah.
1: It
4: will be repeated this evening on one of those evening shows.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I think, I think With music I think and all sorts out, of things. I wrote on my LinkedIn post about <laughs> it. Um, yeah. I mean, I would add to that in that, you know, there, there are some, some other um, new pieces within the loan programs office. That have evolved, like the the CEFI waiver, right? The the State Energy Finance right. Institute. And and I think one of the one of the reasons why LPO is attractive, not only will it fund these projects where they can't get private capital from the industry, but it also helps build those partnerships, right? And um, we have applicants that aren't ready for the LPO yet, right. and we're helping them with some of those grant writing. So it's like, look, you're you're not at the technology readiness level that you need to be to start LPO, but we'll get you there, right? right? And so it might not be right for you now, but it might be in a year from now or two years from now, and let's sort of build towards that. And then in other cases we're leveraging our private equity network for those businesses that maybe just don't need the LPO right. like your your sort of best case scenario and so you know as we as we help these applicants think about their sort of scenario planning you know what what we're finding is that the LPO is really attractive for you know the the accessibility the rates uh, and those partnerships that they can bring to bear uh, to work with those state yeah, energy yeah. finance institutions work with the national labs uh, and actually make the project happen you
3: know, that's a good point
5: well these are all really great points and I guess you know all I can say is just to wrap that up is that you know these are very very large loans and these are loans that would not qualify for just traditional financing period that's So, um, there's a lot of inherent risk in these projects, and these projects are being financed through taxpayer money. And so, you know, that is the reason why there is so much due diligence um, and, you know, very um, sophisticated underwriting, et cetera. Um, And, you know, the folks at the Loan Programs Office want these loans to close. And so, when applicants can help, LPO help them it makes the whole process go a lot faster.
4: Very good. Can I just add one point? Because yeah, go for it. You asked a really good question, which is, what about the little guy? Right, what about the little guy? Well, the little guy shouldn't become the LPO program. That may not be good news, but it's the truth, right? The little guy's not ready for it. He's gotta find other stuff so that when he's a big guy or gal, they come in ready. This is not a program for startups. It's generally not a program for venture capital-backed companies, portfolio companies. It's not a program for many, many people out there. In fact, those who qualify for the program is a tiny subset of the energy transition. The good news is we have IRA and BIL, which is there for all sorts of other companies who are not ready for a non-recourse loan, but they are ready for a grant and for lots of other things. And plus, we cannot forget about the tax credits. Because everybody's going to love those tax credits, and they're in place for ten years. So, I hope that helps you realize that we're not trying to leave out the little guy on, on purpose. But there are so many other windows for the little
0: guy that they should be looking in those other windows. Yep, I think that is really good. And and one of the the most important things that I've I've heard here so far is the the idea that these are very large loans. They are taxpayer. Paid loans. They want to be successful through the LPO, and you have the entire DOE supporting you if needed. And the DOE is expensive, so that is that is a very good, strong opportunity and and bullpen, if you will, to make sure that your project succeeds, which is which is well worth it in my mind. So. With that, I do think, if we want, we've got five minutes for questions. Does anybody from the audience have a question they want to bring up? Uh, I'll step down. Here you go.
4: Do you ever have a situation where an applicant comes to you on their own, maybe with, um, you know, at an early stage and you reject their application and then they subsequently hire a company like Emerald, and it's it, it helps you to reverse your decision, um, assuming they meet the 10 criteria and Emerald's able to put that in the application.
3: I assume that's directed to me, sir? Uh, you know, yeah, I, 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 you, or, I, I
4: I think I can take that having okay, headed thanks, the outreach Robbie. and business development team <laughs> since its inception. Okay. They don't get the invite to the portal. So in other words, if they're not ready, it's, it's Priya, it's Ed, it's me telling them you're not ready and you're not gonna get a portal invite. Our job is quality control. We can only put in the system something that makes sense. And you're not gonna get past us because we don't, because if you get past us and then fail, then everybody's upset. The applicant's upset. We're upset because we've devoted resources to something that didn't go all the way. Now, with that said, there are 177 applications there. And we're not gonna do 177 conditional commitments in the next 12 months. So it's gonna take time to work through the pipeline. Um, And frankly, I know that if we bring a project that's high quality, we're gonna jump right ahead of 150 applications and be application number 22. It's all about the quality and are you ready to be financed and that, you know, why people need outside advisors like Energy Transition, if I can mention Hamilton Clark without being kicked off the stage, Hamilton Clark. We need them because we're the ones who can tell you honestly whether you have a financeable, bankable deal. If you don't have a bankable deal, then keep working on it until you do, but don't waste your money and time getting into the process and then being frustrated that it's not going fast. So, Ed, did you have anything more to add to that? I would
3: add only that uh, during the review process for both part one and part two, that the applicant has and retains the right to modify uh, its application to address any identified gaps or um, omissions or areas that uh, need further improvement. uh, So that the applicant can um, modify its, uh, its application as it goes through the review process. That's not necessarily uh, necessarily ideal because that stretches out the review time and review process, but it can be done. Uh, So it's not fatal that if there's an issue that is is in fact identified somewhere in the review process that needs to be addressed, that the applicant can go back and uh, address it and come back to the uh, the Loan Programs Office and resume that application.
4: But you know, if I could add, um, you said earlier at the beginning well, you have to have a clear idea of what the end looks like. So if your applicant cannot explain how the deal is going to be underwritten before they start the application, then they should not start. And that's. But this is one of the problems we have. Now, we on this panel and people in this room, we know what a bankable deal is and what it's not. And you can't expect the LPO process to take a deal that's not ready and that the process is going to make it ready. No, it doesn't work like that, right? You've got to be 100% ready, and then you go through the process and they rip you apart and they tear you apart and they do just like we did at JP Morgan. And look, I love what Mr. Walton said at the beginning. We are focused only like a laser beam on the worst case scenario. We are not venture capitalists. Jigger has said that himself, this is not a venture capital credit facility. And we don't take, it won't work risk. Um, And at the end of the day, it's gotta be bankable. The challenge is, since every project is different, first of kind stuff, we can't look to Project Finance 101 to think about how to do this. We have to be innovative, which is, the way I say this, is we help teach the LPO staff had to underwrite our applicant's deal. Because they're not gonna be able to figure it out because they've got too many deals and not enough time. It's our job to teach them to do the deal.
0: So we are at three o'clock. Do we have time for one more question? Yeah. yeah. Okay.
4: Would it be a good transition? the next panel, because this man here is Aaron Melda, who's the Vice President of Transmission and Power Supply at TVA, and a lot of people in this room are interested in next generation nuclear. And I just, I'm Zach Womp, former member of Congress, 14-year appropriator. It's breathtaking kind of the scale at which we're doing things now, which is exciting, but it's also so unusual. I'm interested in what the filters are above y'all from the Secretary down on you know, how, how much goes to any kind of new capacity building investments like next generation nuclear? This entire region is real interested in whether or not SMRs or any kind of advanced
0: nuclear goes forward. And do you all have any kind of filters to say we do need some of this and some of that and some of this?
4: Um, I, I, OK, well, I'll start. I'll start at even though I'm not with the government anymore. I pretend to know everything that's going on inside a forest or a building. I am very honest, and I do know what's going on inside of Forrestal, so it's good to be able to talk about that. They are, if we're talking about nuclear, this Secretary of Energy is dedicated to funding the next generation of SMRs, dedicated 100%. It took us 10 years to get the Vogel project financed. If that doesn't show staying power, I don't know what does. One of my good friends who I bought into LPO was the lawyer on this deal from 2010 to today. And finally, they turned that doggone thing on. So if we could do Vogel, and we did, we can do SMRs. But New Scale just announced that they're in trouble, bankruptcy, I'm not sure, not something good. It was not a good announcement. Other, other SMR folks are falling off the wagon. There are a lot of bumps in the road, but hopefully some subset of everybody that's got a new SMR in their garage will actually build an SMR. And the truth of the matter is, and uh, TVA, I spent time with TVA, WAPA, and the like because you guys were part of my responsibility as Deputy General Counsel for Energy Policy. I did the overseeing legal work for the the power marketing authorities. You guys got to step up. No more dinosaur stuff. It's time to support the energy transition with everything you got. No more excuses. you got to put those offtake contracts in place. Real taxpayer money, not throwing it out the window at risk, but there so that private sector can say, if I do this Dominic Dawes triple somersault and land on my feet, I will get the the, the offtake is there. And this is the same thing for all SMRs. And I've worked with several of these companies. The missing piece is a real firm offtake on the back end. And real, someone said, high quality equity providers, not shaky equity providers, not people saying they're going to get it and they don't have it. But TVA, my friends at um, WAPA, is that where um, my old friend is? I'm forgetting her name. She's the director out there. Um, you guys have got to just start working over time to put all of those federal resources at work to do SMRs, because if you don't do it, we're not going to get there. I don't really have a strong opinion I'm, on this.
5: Yeah, and I'll, I'll add to that, too. <laughs>
3: we all want to add to this, <laughs> Congressman. That, I'm, I'm, yeah, that's, this is a to good topic.
5: Okay. It's a um, good topic. So if I understood your question correctly, you were asking if there are any other considerations between the secretary and LPO on whether a loan gets closed or not. No. No.
4: no it's broader than that. Where the money? Where the? Oh. Okay. Where the support's going to go? Like, and, and, you know, bar- got okay. That, that's so, that's why we have that heat map that that Jigger publishes every month. It shows you the allocation. Of the applications, but go ahead, Priya. I, I will actually let you
5: speak. Uh, technically, they they don't have specific ratios. You there it know, is. We have to have like a certain amount of money invested here specifically. I think that is basically showing you what's you know in their pipeline right now. Right. Um, that's the yeah, and that there that's it. And then, um, but I did want to just let you know if you didn't already know that um, you know LPO has their own process on what gets closed and. The engineering team has certain criteria that they use to evaluate phase um, part one and part two applications, et cetera. Every single team has their criteria. And then we recommend that this go to conditional commitment and to close. And then, you know, if there are any disagreements with an LPO, and and there are, you know, people see things a little differently here and there, um, there are something called program policy factors that are applied on top of all of the analysis that done, that's done at LPO. So if you're not already familiar with the, what, about what those program policy factors are, um, those are decisions that the secretary can make and add to the analysis on whether or not a loan gets closed or not.
4: I, I might, I know I'm hogging the microphone, but what else is new? The, um, I would add, everyone should look at the sectoral commercial liftoff reports. Uh, they, they were begun when I was there and Jigger and others, David Crane and others, have published reports for uh, half a dozen sectors as to what is required for commercial liftoff. How many hundreds of millions or how many billions of investment is needed to build out the infrastructure and the plants or whatever needed for a particular sector. And then, then what they're doing at the David Crane Undersecretary of Infrastructure level, then they try to figure out, well, how do we get there? In some cases, it's going to be an OSID grant, and some people will get a 48 cap C advanced energy manufacturing tax credit, and some people will be eligible and might get a loan. So this is crazy comprehensive and unbelievable, and we were saying we never thought we would see this in our lifetimes. Us, us old project finance lawyers who are in the room, we never thought we'd see this. Here you go.
3: I just just had a comment, sort of a personal observation, uh, Congressman Wamp. I've been in Washington, D.C. about four decades, probably less than you have. uh, But I have never seen an administration so strongly support nuclear energy in my professional career. I I joined the LPO about 15 years ago, came in to help uh, oversee the Vogel Project, and spent a little bit longer on that project than I anticipated. But I'm, I'm glad... I'm glad that project got over the finish line. But there is no uh, doubt from the seventh floor where the secretary's office is located down to the fourth floor where Jigger's office is located, we're 100% in on advanced nuclear. And we're doing everything we can every day to advance the ball down the field. Just want to say that.
1: Join us again next week for another low-carbon, high-energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.